and welcome to Co-Produce Care. Today we have with us Raina Summerson from Agin Care. Um, and as a provider of uh, social care services, Raina is going to be talking to us about the trials and tribulations of being a provider, everything that they have to do, the joys of it, um, and some of the crazy stuff that's going on at the moment um, around the budget and uh, Corona um, and lots, lots more. So this is going to be a great uh, chat. Thank you for coming down. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Um, so, Raina, first of all, can you just explain who you are and what you do in Agin Care? Okay, so I'm Group Chief Executive of Agin Care, so we've got um, several different holding companies, so we cover quite a diverse range of services compared to maybe a lot of providers our size. So we have um, home care across the country, we have extra care schemes, uh, care homes, care and nursing homes, including for younger adults mental health. Um, and we do um, supported living and living care and we've got an employment company and we've got a training company. So we've also got our head office and obviously the support functions that go with kind of delivering all of those care services. So yeah, quite a diverse range of services. And so I sit um, as group chief executive across all of those. Um, and yeah, with family owned business started in 1986 with one care home, um, still family owned, no exit strategy, quite sustainable, um, but, yeah, a, a big range of services across the country. So mm. about, you know, probably about 55 sites now. Oh, wow. About 4,000 staff. Um, so, so yeah, it, I think in terms of anything that's being chucked at social care, we're probably yeah. part of, and, of it. Um, yeah, I didn't know you did so many things. That's a lot. Um, do you think that you've grown organically because you've just seen there's a need to have your own HR in-house? and Or... I mean, is that something you provide as a service? Um, we've always had our own HR in-house. We've always tried to do all of our services in-house. Yeah. As we've grown, you kind of always go through the, should I outsource something, what should mm. I use? So sales and marketing was probably the only thing we really used externally. Um, and IT contractors, though we have our own IT support as, as well. Um, and HR, we try and keep HR and recruitment, you know, quite a core team. If we want HR employment advice, we'll use it, you know, we'll use our legal advisors. Yeah. Um, and there might be odd bits of pieces of work that we, we get people in, but normally we have tried to grow our own team and we've got some great success stories about people. Mm. And I've been with Agilecare 16 years this year, but we've got lots of other team members who've been with us on, on a long journey and their careers have developed. Yes. And um, so that's our preference. In the last couple of years, we've also looked to bringing in new skills because you do want the you want the mix, you want the experience from other places as well. Um, and I th yeah, I, I mean we've grown organically. The diverse range of services I think for us has always been about. Um, I think partly because a lot of us come from health and social care, mm. so we kind of are aware of the diversity. And I think in terms of an organisation, it's quite good risk-wise. You know, we've when austerity kicked in last time, um, yeah. it, we. We found home care hit terribly, you know, really, you know, overnight, really, the, the reaction of local mm -hmm. authorities and central government and the effect on the economy really hit hard. And, you know, we had to reevaluate where we were going. And then we hadn't been doing care homes as much then, but we thought actually there is a need. We feel there is still a need with yeah. workforce pressures, with high dependency, with people living not only longer, but more remotely from their families, yeah. with workforce issues in home care. So, 
we turned a little bit more attention to that, consolidated our home care, made sure it was safe, made sure it was sustainable, made sure we looked at the viability of contracts with local authorities, mm. um, and made sure that was right and solid. And then the growth went into a different area of the company, and I think equally we can kind of pull and push that growth and yeah. that investment of time and resources to ensure that we're sustainable long term, that we're not, you know, we're not going to kind of yeah. crash and burn, really. Yeah, I think it's interesting having an organisation like yours that has mm. got so many different bits to it. Because mm. sometimes people think, you know, if you have an organisation, you're just doing home care or you're just doing residential, mm. and they compartmentalise it. But when you mm. think about when you're dealing with one person, I know we found mm. a situation where we might have someone in a residential care home and then they don't need it. And then they'll go to like supported living, but they don't want a whole different company with a whole different yeah, set of staff yeah. and rules. So if they can transition from one to the other right. without having to change the whole staff mm. team, um, I think that really works for them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like that. Yeah, I mean, we always say when we always kind of try and do the pathway of care, you know, mm. ideally it would be great if people can't come to us at maybe a lower level service and then stay with us through to end of life or when they don't need a service anymore. In reality, you know, that doesn't always happen because geography and uh, although we've got the range of services, they're not necessarily all always in, in one area. Okay. So we've got pockets like in Medway, um, we've got, you know, all of our services are layered really well there and in quite a tight geographical area. Mm -hmm. But in other areas, you might have a care home, but you haven't got a particularly close um, home care office yeah. and in other areas it's differently. But I think the diversity of social care is what, you know, Sometimes we struggle with the kind of knowledge and awareness of what social care does yes. because it does so much. Yeah. It's it's so dispersed. There's so many providers in it. So many different types. And you know, we talk about home care like it's kind of homogenous lump. And mm -hmm. and you know, even in our home care organisation, we deliver you know prison services, respite services, night services, day services, mm -hmm. extra care services, end of life discharge to assess services. You know, so you've got this whole range of people and ages and illnesses or conditions or disabilities yeah. or or out and the outcomes that are different for all of those services. Yeah. Um, so we kind of make this sweeping social care yeah. that covers so much, which is what I love about it. And mm. I think a lot of people, you know, I think once you're in it and you love social care, mm. um, because it is just so multifaceted. I, first time I came across you as you were at Health Plus Care mm. Conference and you were there on the stage with a, on a panel and you were talking uh, with, I can't even remember who was there because obviously they weren't as interesting as you. <laughs> um, yeah. It was two GPs, um, wasn't it? Okay, don't call yeah. me out. Um, <laughs> so I, I loved your honesty mm -hmm. and I loved your representation <clears throat> of providers on that stage because mm -hmm. people sometimes don't hear from provider perspective mm -hmm. and it was just like, don't forget us. Yeah, we'll provide a service, but we do so much and we have mm. so many issues that aren't being talked about. Mm. Like, do you feel that, you know, you've been doing it for so many years and in it and living it. Is it ever frustrating that over that period of time, we're still in the same place talking about the same issues? Definitely, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I started in care um, as a direct a care team member and um, and worked in hospitals, worked in care homes, in people's own homes, and um, with with a multitude of different people and places. And then I was a social worker, so that brought me into contact with with different perspectives. And then a regulatory inspector, as you said, for five years. Um, and then 
being in urgent care and kind of obviously the it, it, it is the same issue. I do get frustrated. I'll sit and think, I was talking about that in my social work course, yeah. or I was sitting talking about that with the advent of community care, and and how are we still sitting here talking about the same issues? And, you know, the budget's classic yesterday. How do we have another budget where social care is ignored? Yeah. How do we have people's, you know, a secretary of state saying, oh, well, I've written about cross-party talks and long-term planning, mm -hmm. because this isn't a, an overnight crisis. This is something that's been going and going and going. And I think, you know, we've got so many people, all levels in social care, who are propping up a system that is broken, and that's in terms of operating an organisation in it. It's about working and frontline team members' experience and... and reputation and conditions and the lack of respect and acknowledgement they get across society in general um you know right through to people who are now going without care that they need because the system isn't there or the funding's not there mm -hmm. so to keep pushing it down the line is terribly frustrating and then you get other issues like technology you know and that's the kind of be all and end all now it's mm -hmm. Yes, technology has developed loads, but I can remember equally sitting there 25 years ago looking at smart homes, looking at how we would, you know, enhance care and, and people's lives through use of technology. And don't get me wrong, there's some great, you know, great things out there in technology and we as social care need to embrace that and have more support again from central government for funding and ideas and innovation. But we know that largely in social care, I mean, most of our, about 75% of our, our um, operations are with local authority or CCG. They are the most dependent people. They're not having that access through funded care unless they really need it. Yeah. And a lot of what they do, you know, and our teams do can't be replaced with technology and equipment. Mm. And it's about human contact. It's about human care. It's about compassion. It's about support. Um, so it's got a place. But let's not, you know, and it's not, it's not a new thing. Yeah. It's been there for a while. And the yeah. fact that it hasn't really found its feet and absolutely revolutionised social mm -hmm. care really tells us that it's, it's an enhancement. It's a really good in preventive care. It's really good in health monitoring. Mm -hmm. There's some great ways. And we don't, you know, again, we're using it. We're using electronic records. We're mm -hmm. using different things. We're looking at acoustic monitoring. So it's not that I'm, you know, against it in any way. We need to embrace it more. But it's not a replacement for what our teams do. It's not a replacement yeah. for, for humans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think like the language that is used in social care is a little bit, I don't know, it's almost like social care is a problem. Yeah. It's a crisis. Yeah. Like we need to bring social care up to the levels of the NHS. So it doesn't yeah. have, you know, it's, like it's poor, a poor relation to the... Mm. But when you think of like, there's the same amount of staff that are employed by the NHS and social care. Well, I think there's even more oh, in social yeah. care. Um, and I know the jobs are different, but it's it's the way that it's talked about mm. in the media, I think, mm. and also politicians. And it's just changing that dialogue of actually there's mm. so many strengths and mm. there's people who would do an amazing job and actually NHS could learn from social care. Yeah, um, it, That, yeah. I think, is a, a, a yeah. really good point. And I think every, every day, I, you know, we always look, I think, as you say, media drive it a lot, but we're always looking at... What does social care get wrong? What yeah. does, and that's including, you know, we're not funding it properly, we haven't got a system that's robust enough, we've got, we've got sort of, you know, the bad news stories hit the press. But actually, I think every day and every week, when if I stop and think about what we do and what our teams do, I think, how do we get so much right every yeah. day? How do we, you know, just in our home care organisation, we probably deliver 
nigh on 45,000 separate visits every week. Yeah. Then we care for another thousand people who live in our care homes. Then we care for another few hundred clients who have living care. Actually, how do we get that so right without a lot of support from society or central government? How do we get that right so much is what we're really saying. Right. And as you say, learn, looking at that and saying, isn't this an amazing workforce? Isn't this an amazing yeah. you know, sector that does so much across the infrastructure of society every day? And yet, as you say, doesn't get the recognition. Yeah. Um, our workforce don't get that recognition. And I mean, I've said before, you, know, you go in a pub and you say you're a nurse and no matter what's wrong with the NHS or what's wrong with your local hospital, or mm. people will you know, be, oh, wow, you know, you're amazing. And, um, and that's right, because they are. <laughs> but actually, our social care teams are. Yeah. And if you go in a pub and say you're a care worker, people are more likely to go, and what do you do that for? And you know, it'd be negative about it and not yeah. give it the respect it's due. So, yeah. um, I wonder yeah. whether the social care wasn't mentioned much because they don't have confidence in it. They don't know it. They don't understand yeah. how it works. Yeah. They're not speaking to the right people. They're not asking mm. us how we do what we do. Mm. And so it's this big you know, elephant in the room, but mm. they actually don't know how to deal with it because they're not used to dealing from the ground up. Mm. They want some, you know, sir somebody to do a report and tell mm. them this is how you solve social care. Mm. Um, and then they may or may not listen to it instead of just going out to the sector and saying, mm. what are you doing? What are you doing right? What do we need to help you with? And mm. then finding a solution if there needs to be yeah. a solution, I mean, I, you know, yeah. what, how that solution, how they need to help mm. us, really. Yeah, I, I think they, I, I, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, the government's always a transient thing and everyone mm. is quite a short-term yeah. um, issue. And I think social care is a big issue that no one's quite dared in their term tackle and, you know, yeah. sort of Theresa may try and do something and then that went disastrously wrong. And, and so, so I think it, it is a prickly area, like your There you go. Is, yeah. <laughs> um, but I... I do think they have heard, you know, there have been mechanisms. I mean, the UKHEA is as a, a trade association for, for many years, really after austerity kicked in 2008-9, put together kind of large provider groups and forums, as, as did Care England and, and you know, other, other um, national forums mm. and bodies, and have made very strong representation over the year. And we have had, uh, over the years, and we have had avenues where we have been able to sit at the table with ministers and with people from the Department of Health and Social Care okay. and talk about the issues and say, ask us, we'll tell you, we want to share. And we've tried to have representative groups whereby we're reflecting all the different services, we're reflecting different geographies and we're trying to look at solutions and positive things rather than just moan all the time because that's the other thing that the sector can be a little bit yeah <laughs> where we can be a bit negative yeah. and we can come across as whinging and all going on about the Which same thing we've got why. to be saying actually yeah. if we did this we could do this mm -hmm. um and so i think they've been told so i do think it's a case of not listening care homes are a little bit further ahead i think than than community-based care services mm -hmm. in terms of direct kind of domiciliary care, living care, supported living. I think anything that's kind of bed-placed reminds me a little bit more of hospitals and stuff and they get their head around it. Obviously it's bricks and mortar, the investment's different. I think it's been a lot of pressure. So I think the care home market's a little bit more mature. So it's got a stronger it's, voice. Yeah, I think it's got a stronger voice and I think the thought of, you know, 50 care homes not being built or being closed is more tangible for a lot of ministers and a lot of people who don't understand social care to get their heads around. Home care, living care, supported living, other support mm -hmm. services, less so. Um, and partly because we're all propping the system up. You know, it has, you know, yes, there have been failures. Yes, there are closures. 
but has it actually impacted hugely on society? It's impacted on individuals, it's impacted on individual areas tremendously with their lives, but it's not had that big yeah. market hit. Um, I'm always really yeah. cynical about things like that. I think, are they just hitting certain sectors because that's their voter base? Quite possibly. And, yeah. you know, they think, well, LD services, um, you know, they might make the assumption that mm. LD services, certain people may not be a big, big voters mm -hmm. for them. So I'm going to mm -hmm. support the people who shout the loudest and mean the most to me. Yeah. I might be wrong, no. but sometimes no, it, I wonder sure if that fact not, yeah. puts, puts in... Um, and, and I think there's something about... We're a very, very dispersed sector. There's mm. a lot of people in it. And, and at the end of the day now, there are a lot of, you know, most of it is independent sector. So in a way, it's that kind of government where we can't interfere too much because everyone's an independent business and an organisation and we can't prop up, we can't be seen to be supporting them. We can't. But actually, that whole mindset to me needs to change. If you've chosen, politically, you can think it's wrong yeah. that so much care is now in the independent sector, but it is. And then... So we are part of the core infrastructure in the same way that the NHS is. It might be more dispersed and broken up, but actually doing anything in the NHS... I mean, I sit on the Dorset Workforce Action Board as a representative of the, of the sector leadership group, and, you know, there's five trusts in that room, and they've all got their own agenda, and it's hard to get them to work together. So in a way, the NHS is, you know, yes, it's a cohesive brand, but it's also got a lot of fragmentation in it and, and differences. And so is our sector, but I think, you know, there, there's a fear because there's a lot of independent businesses in there and so there's that fear factor of helping out. It's the difficulty of trying to channel something into the whole sector. So you, in, you um, mean getting the communication out to I think communication, yeah, I think communication, but also, <coughs> you know, yeah, how do you get people to cohesively engage? How do you get, how do you put something out that's going to benefit everybody when it's actually their business and they're independent and they're yeah. not a state even so, though you know you could do it by even looking at well actually a business has got a certain amount of its, yeah. its operations it is through is providing state-funded care therefore surely you're an arm of the state mm -hmm. you know you're not doing you'll be you might be an independent organization but you're delivering that care on behalf of the state of society yeah I and we're held accountable for that through auditing and contracting and payment and everything therefore we should get the same respect back in terms of being yeah. a key provision that's a really good point because i had this conversation on the last chat and another chat before it's i think you're talking about the difference between it, the way private providers independent providers and non-for-profit providers are treated mm -hmm. so um i was speaking to martin green from care england mm -hmm. and he said well the person who's receiving the care doesn't doesn't bother. They don't mind. Mm -hmm. If you ask them, mm -hmm. is this person private yeah. or is it charity? They don't mind. Um, and then there's other people who are really passionate, saying it should all be in the voluntary sector mm -hmm. because it's caring, and so nobody should be making a profit from it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's two different arguments. And then, so yeah, I'm interested to hear out hear about what you've been experiencing. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel like you've been treated differently as a private organisation compared to charitable organisations? Um, I think there's a lot of generalisation, and uh, and I 
really dislike that. <laughs> so I think it's my personal yeah. values and my social work values. For okay. me, I hate injustice. And injustice yeah. to me can be about, you know, societal injustice and looking at groups of individuals. Um, it can be about injustice. And, but equally, it's about actually when I see our teams and other providers working so hard and giving mm. so much and propping the system up, subsidising, you know, the government's delivery of essential care because people will go always the extra mile to try and deliver care. It doesn't mean we get it right all the time, but nor does the NHS, yeah. nor, do, nor do most public funded services, nor do charities. So I think it's this kind of profits bad, not for profits good, public sector's good, private's bad. It's just ridiculous generalisations, you know, that you will get the odd, you know, person who shouldn't probably be in care mm. in an, in the NHS, in primary care, in in acute care, in community-based care, and no one wants that to happen. But the vast majority of people and the people that deliver the services and coordinate the services and manage the services, you know, it's a, it's a hard job. Yeah. And you don't do it lightly yeah. at any level in a social care organisation. And so... It's really hurtful, and, and also the, the lobbying I talked about, you know, through the UKHA members, Care England, National Care Forum, now like, you know, NACAS and the, the great work Caroline is doing to try and represent the sector, you know, people in the NHS get paid to do their jobs, they don't turn up for nothing, mm. so it's kind of ridiculous to expect that people in the sector shouldn't, and I think that Actually, we put in a huge amount. If we were to, you know, the lobbying and the and the representation that's been done by myself, my colleagues in Agent Care, but equally colleagues across the independent sector over the last ten years, would have cost the NHS tens of thousands of pounds if they used consultants. We've been offering commercial expertise, experience, knowledge. Um, you know, data from around the country, and we do that all in our own time, and. Uh, with our organisations and whoever the shareholders are paying for that. And so to kind of wipe us all off as yeah. money-grabbing bad guys, it's ridiculous. Mm. And charities will, you know, often charitable bosses will be on far more than independent sector bosses. And, you know, their funds may not be appropriately managed or they might put a lot of their funds into fundraising rather than direct care. Um, if there wasn't the investment from, you know, the, the independent sector. And even though, you know, I'm, I've got views, personal views, about some of the equity, private equity investment and it turning into an investment pot. Yes, yeah. And I feel quite strongly about, mm -hmm. about that and what it may maybe has done to the sector. But equally, if we hadn't had some of that investment in society, who would have paid for these care homes to be built? Yeah. How many other services would have closed because there wasn't the public money to invest in them. And equally, there's a great, a lot of intelligence, skill, enthusiasm, yeah. goodwill, mm. entrepreneurship, commercial knowledge, that is really valuable and vibrant for the sector. And so to have it dismissed, I, I get really upset because it is, it's like putting us and all of our team members into this, your, you know, money-grabbing, useless, uncaring people. It's just not true. Recruitment is a big thing in um, health and social care um, and you seem to have a really nice way within Agent Care of bringing staff up um, and promoting staff mm -hmm. and careers. Can you talk a bit about what you do in that, in that space? 
Yeah, yeah, we try. Um, obviously, we have recruitment issues like yeah. every social care organisation. But I think we have got some really good success stories about people coming through. And I know when we do the work, whether it's with Department of Health and Social Care, whether it's with the health service, um, we really try and talk about what the careers are in care. Because I think people, again, think, you know, we talked about thinking about all the services lumped together. And I think people equally think all the jobs are lumped together. Everyone goes out and delivers frontline care and you know and they think of that in quite a basic way um, and so I think we've done a lot of work with colleges through our own recruitment through our own kind of comms to try and say actually it doesn't matter whether you're a frontline care team member and you choose to do that frontline care forever mm. or you want to progress we've got a place for you either way and they're equally valuable and the experience and empathy and skill and in negotiation, in time management, in risk assessment, in, you know, just kindness and compassion that you have to show every day in frontline, you know, work. Because particularly with our home care, they're often working on their own. They turn up, don't know what they're going to find when they open the door. Um, and they deal with it, you know. And yes, we've got a part of playing, you know, in terms of do they know what they're doing? Have they got policies, procedures, guidance, support, networks, training to help them? But a lot of that comes from the values-based stuff, which obviously is much stronger in social care and recruitment now with the kind of values-based recruitment toolkits and things. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for us, it's also about saying to people, where do you want to be? Where, you know, what do you want to do? Because some people want to progress in that career and do different things, and other people just want to be good at what they do and enjoy what they do. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got some great examples, I mean, in, in home care we've got people, lots of examples of people who've started at frontline care, developed into a senior um, home carer, come into the office to do coordination, progressed into deputy management, progressed to registered manager, which is a you know, really big legal responsibility, big, big job, and then gone on to do either business development management roles or gone into operations management, and, you know, Kelly in our home care team, Karen in our home care team, yeah, the examples of people who have been with us for many years and done that. Um, and that's fantastic because then they're sharing their experience with other people, they're role modelling yes. so other people see they can do it. And they, they, you know, it's just brilliant for us to see that happen and they bring so much to the organisation. And equally, we get that in accounts, we get it mm -hmm. in administrative roles, we get that in HR. Amy, our HR manager, has been with us for years and developed and she's done training in HR. And she's like a font of knowledge for so many people. Mm -hmm. Joe, our group quality manager, you know, pe people can develop and you know I think it helps with us because we're a growing organisation and it obviously can be a little bit different if you're a static organisation but even so I think our celebration of our cares and our care roles and the different careers it could be commercial it could be HR it could be accounts it could be finance management it could be quality it could be facilities it could be end-of-life care dementia care mental health learning yeah. disability and then you know again we put it all in a lump yeah. and I sat with NHS colleagues at um, Workforce Action Board somewhere a couple of weeks ago and people really don't get it. They're like, oh, well, maybe they could come into the NHS and have a career. No, they can stay in social care and have a brilliant career. And obviously for myself, I've, you know, started in frontline care and developed and it's been a great career for me. Um, 
Yeah, so yeah, lovely it's hearing those stories. I think it goes back to that thing of um, people thinking, well, if you're in the NHS and you've made it, yeah. if you're in social care, then oh, you don't really want to be there. You're only yeah. there because you can't get to get a job in the NHS. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Um, I actually think it's really interesting to hear those stories mm. and also to open up the debate about there are so many different careers. Yeah. And like you say, sometimes you want to stay in social care. Yeah. Um, I was reading something that one of the reports the CQC put out, and they were talking about be really good if more providers work together to see if social care could be like a, a lead into the NHS. Mm-hmm. So we could develop careers so far and then mm-hmm. hand over to the NHS, mm-hmm. which maybe that's sometimes what people want to do. We've had lots mm-hmm. of students yeah. who want to get work experience, yeah, uh, work for us sometimes for a couple of years, and mm-hmm. then they want to go on to be a nurse, but they want the experience in social care. So sometimes that works really well. Um, but equally, sometimes, you know, we've had people who have started with us, even as doing kind of like domestic type work and then ended up being um nvq assessor yeah and you just you don't hear enough of those stories no um all the people come the other way because we're seeing increasing you know nhs is hard Mm. working on wards is is tough and actually the pay that we've got in our nursing homes particularly for nurses is is more than compromised better so you've got nurses in care yeah yeah Yeah. and it and so we do get as you say we've had different people who've done student nursing or occupational therapy Mm. and that's great you know if people want to go off in that route that's brilliant because hopefully they're going off with an embedded knowledge of social care that will help change knowledge about it in the health service so you know we support that but i hate us being seen as a feeder we're just a feeder for the nhs because there's not really a future as you say in social care your future is in somewhere else uh but we're a little good training ground we're a good we can do all the hard work and then (laughs) someone else can reap the benefits actually there's always going to be a part of that but i think we we need to be seeing it as more fluid, people maybe coming in and out, maybe more job sharing roles, I think particularly in clinical care. Um, and we see that with our nurses, we're being approached by people who said, actually I've had enough of the NHS, I've had enough of working in that environment. And actually I do want to be somewhere where I can deliver maybe more person-centered care, I can be part of a team that's a bit more consistent. I can, you know, and you probably have more autonomy t- as well. I think so, I mean sometimes that's a, a challenge because I think in a hospital you've always got probably someone else there mm. to ask something or a consultant who's taking ultimate responsibility. Or do, And actually in a care home environment it's again a hugely responsible role but again we have you know non-nurses leading care home shifts and managing care homes and they do it brilliantly um so i think the autonomy can be great it can be off-putting for some people as a lot of responsibility um but yeah i I really would love to see that become more fluid and and again that's one of the things you say you know do we get bored of the same things coming up Mm. Uh, my first proper job was a joint funded role with Surrey County Council and I think it was the North West Surrey Health Authority. It was joint funded about getting people out of hospital into their own homes. Yeah. And we're still struggling with that concept of joint working. We're still yeah. struggling with that concept of getting people home safely and then with the most appropriate care and support to take them forward or reducing that completely. So, mm-hmm. you know, we do seem a bit stuck in... Stuck in a rut. Yeah. <laughs> stuck in a rut. Um, stuck in the middle. Stuck in the middle. Mm-hmm. There we go. So we've just had the uh, budget and... It was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, (laughs) March. And I I was actually, I was here, I was in the office Mm -hmm. and I was in between trying to do things. So I was trying to listen to it whilst I was trying to do work Mm -hmm. and I kind of got into it a little bit late and I thought, okay, I'm listening up social care, listening up social care. Or maybe I've missed it and then it got to the end and he's... (coughs) 
um, Rishi said, well, I we, we want to do everything we can do. We deliver on everything. And now we're going to deliver on NHS and social mm. care. And that was the word. Yeah. That was it. And then it was, and he sat down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And all, all the labour and people on the other side were kind of like heckling. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, the only yeah. mention, you know. What about social yeah, care? Yeah. What are you going to do? Um, so, yeah. What about social care? Yeah. What well, I did exactly what you did. I kept thinking I'd missed something. And then I did a, <laughs> did a summary email of the budget to act the directors. And... Um, I was, I was like checking Twitter yeah. and checking <laughs> the live news to think, yeah. I must have missed something. And, um, and I think Twitter was amazingly quiet after it in terms yeah. of social care. It was shocked. I think it was. I think people were yeah. genuinely shocked. Because I think we'd had the National Living Wage Uplift mm. announcement. And I, everyone, you know, we all know we want our team members to be paid more. No one, yeah. you know, we want them to be paid better. We want to have a framework that can give them better terms and conditions. But actually to lump a 6.2% uplift on national living wage without then telling the sector that's already under pressure how you're going to support that is just irresponsible. And I think we'd been fogged off a bit with the kind of, oh, it'll be in the budget. Yeah. And then to have nothing mentioned apart from the long-term plans and the cross-party talks, it is just, you know, woefully inadequate and, and, and I think genuinely shocked, I think did shock a lot of people. Um, you know, we, we've got the coronavirus um, lump yeah. sum and that will affect local authorities, so some of that may filter through um, and there's obviously some emergency monies that can be drawn on for smaller businesses mm -hmm. to help with any um, SSP or if they're not eligible, there's, there's other hardship funds. Um, and then there's money, obviously another big pot of money for the NHS that we may see through various discharge schemes and joint working. Um, but though, you know, when the money comes through the NHS to social care, A, it often doesn't come through in anything other than dribs and drabs. Mm -hmm. And it comes through usually with the sole purpose of propping up the NHS rather than social care in its own right. Right. So I think it is really, really worrying. I think people are genuinely shocked, genuinely worried. Now it's like, oh, wait for the spending review mm -hmm. and then that year will, will be bated breath and then probably like other spending reviews, it will, it will be inadequate. So yeah, genuinely worrying, genuinely shocking. And I think genuinely when everybody is extremely tired and under pressure after many, many years yeah. and then coronavirus on top of already waiting to see if we're going to get any uplifts from local government because they're waiting on funding options from central government. Mm. So a lot of us, you know, we've got increased wage bills that are our biggest costs across all, all care business. How, you know, how are we going to meet that? How, what's that going to mean for some service delivery? How are we going to continue to recruit against, you know, retail? We've got immigration points-based system. You know, it's like everything conspiring against us to carry on delivering. So I think genuinely people were... Uh, you know, it's not that we expect much because we used to not get much, yeah. but I think genuinely there was shock and um, and it's a very dangerous position, particularly with a, you know, such a big unknown with coronavirus and trying yeah. to tackle national issue. Um, so very short-sighted. I wonder whether when we talk about the lack of mention of social care in this budget, and what you were saying about the national minimum wage increase and the fact that I know some local authorities that we work with are just a little silent on how much they can yeah. support us in, yeah. in terms of raising rates. Yeah. The people who suffer the most mm -hmm. are the people who work in social care and the people yeah. who work in social care thinking about international women's day yeah. are the majority of them are women yeah. 
And I know when I do interviews with people, a lot of them are women who, there's a, it's from every sense, mm. from every mm. part of mm. life, but sometimes you'll have women who, maybe they've been carers themselves, mm -hmm. uh, maybe they've cared for their family, and mm. they are now thinking, I'm confident I can do this job. Mm. And then they come and they do the job, and they do it fantastically well. And a lot of them are so selfless as mm. well. Um, and then they get some qualifications, and like you're talking mm -hmm. about the career development, and, they, and I see it, and I see how it develops people. And it's just such a shame that we can't say, we see what you're doing, we really appreciate mm, it. Absolutely. It, yeah. you know, it kind of breaks my heart yeah. that we can't just put two and two together yeah. and say, you're doing a great job and yeah. we actually think you deserve to be paid yeah. really well for it. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think we get a lot of, I think in the last probably three to five years we've had a bit more noise around that. So NHS leaders are often out there now talking about social care, they realise that it's integral to, to the success of, of their roles and, and, and their organisation and, uh, and I think that's great. Um, I think you get lip service from ministers about how wonderful yeah. social care workforce is but it's not followed through with anything and then the danger is that our workforce doesn't understand the pressures we're under then it just and again it goes back to that oh it's because the independent sector doesn't want to spend the money on mm. staff it's because you know, I, I hate it when you see CQC reports and there's issues with staffing either about numbers or about consistency or agency use and um, the default position is yeah because you won't spend the money or you won't employ enough staff yeah. you know uh, the recent comment, you know, a social care sector needs to redouble its efforts to recruit more people. Like we haven't been trying like, already. Exactly. I mean, we spend <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of pounds on recruitment. And I'd love for actually the money that we're having to spend on recruitment to be put into our workforce yeah. um, and give them more. But it's balancing everything all of the time. So we try and explain to our workers... We know, we know that you're underpaid and undervalued and we do everything we can to make sure you know that's not how we feel about you. Mm. But these are the boundaries that we work in. Yes. And we try and affect change, we try and commit to lobbying, we try and commit to representation, we talk about how wonderful you are, we try and showcase your work. Mm. Um, and I think that works to a degree, but it doesn't pay the bills, yeah, does it? absolutely. <laughs> it, it, but, you know, we can only do so much, and I think the stuff that you're doing around lobbying and putting the word out and being that mm. honest provider who's on the stage and talking about those issues, I mean, it's just brilliant. Mm. We just Thank have to you. have more of us, and they need to listen. And I think mm. it's very much the case of you hear people say these great things, and they'll go, mm. someone will go on Andrew Marr, and they'll be like, I mean, Matt Han Hancock or somebody will say, we really value social mm. care, and then you have the budget. Yeah, so you exactly. look at what people yeah. say, and then you yeah. look at what people do, yeah. and there's just it just doesn't tie tally. Absolutely. So I don't know how long we're going to be letting them off this. I think we no. have to go marching somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> well, we were saying that we were saying we need to get a little bit more extinction rebellion. Oh, absolutely. On it yeah, on maybe. But yeah, I mean, it, we tried that with the social care when I remember when the junior doctors were striking mm. and UKHA put together a really good campaign, Save Our Home Care, and our workforce really got behind it. And I mean, they were, you know, they were taking pictures of them on trains with the placards yeah. and things. And we did, we were all on social media. Obviously there's not a great representation, although there's a core group on social media, there's not a huge representation on social media. Um, we used Facebook, we used social media, um, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn and things. And um, we just couldn't even get enough to get it yeah. to Parliament, yeah. couldn't get, what is it, 10,000? Yeah, and yet the junior doctors, there's only 50,000 of them, they got, their petition was full within a few days, it went into, and we just have so many people using the sector, 
either as employment or in terms of needing care and support and yet we just can't garner the voice right, in okay. any mass and I think that isn't through lack of trying from mm -hmm. quite a few people in the sector but we just don't seem to be able to succeed to, to get yeah. it. I feel like yeah. that's the action plan now. It is. We're yeah, going we just... to decide. Yeah, we yeah. should start a petition yeah. today. Yeah. Say, say, what should we call it? Save our social care. Value our social care. Yeah, and we'll then think just something. we'll think yeah. of something, yeah. and then get as many signatures Do and yeah. say, you know, we're not going to let you off. Yeah. Next budget, mm -hmm. it better come, and it better come strong. Yeah. Let's um, do it. Let's do it. But yeah, there's some really good points. Because we are in coronavirus, COVID-19 times, I feel oh, like... <laughs> <laughs> right now, just in case people are watching in like two um, months' time. I feel like we should talk about it because, I mean, I've just come off a conference call talking about what we're doing and yeah. where's the guidance and what should we be doing and how provide providers maybe we need to share information mm -hmm. about our disaster recovery yeah. plans um and i know that there's a cobra meeting this afternoon yeah. as we're speaking now and something's going to come out from that um how do you feel the response has been from local government helping mm. providers be advised on what they yeah. need to do and, and what what's adding care doing Okay, I mean, I, I think like you, you know, we've been reviewing things, talking to different people, and I said to you on my way up, I was on the phone to ITV journalists yeah. who were, were, were asking providers and, and saying, what are we doing, how, how do we feel central government responses, how do we feel local government responses, and the theme there was very much about actually people are obviously starting to panic more and more um, and actually how do we reassure the people that we give care and support to how do we reassure our teams so I think that's an ongoing piece of work for us and I think there's several elements I mean we're reviewing things you know more than more than daily you know throughout the day every day issuing guidance making sure we keep up to date with everything um, linking in updating obviously business continuity plans um, linking in with our, again, trade associations and people that can help represent our views into central government, local government organisations. So LGA are very clear, ADAS are very clear, Department of Health and Social Care are very clear on what the, the sector needs. And I, I do believe, you know, between the trade associations, those messages so are getting messages there. what messages are they saying? So I think it's that don't overwhelm the sector in terms of, you know, local governments all asking providers for things every day because yeah. that becomes overwhelming you know for us we've got you know, 55 sites across the country with multiple contracts and multiple local authorities multiple ccgs everyone asking us for updates every day just becomes a full-time job and takes away from the essential matters at hand which is supporting our workforce to deliver essential care our own business continuity planning for essential items and for the what ifs you know reviewing the risks for our, our group of staff and for the people we deliver care to i think they're saying why aren't we on par with the nhs in terms of equipment in terms of access to financial help to practical help what's going to happen about um, things like regulation, staffing ratios, complaints, safeguardings, you know, practical things yeah. that if through the virus care has to be um, delivered in a different way and risk assessed um, or even in some cases can't be delivered, mm -hmm. how are people going to work together? So I think there's a whole, whole array of things, some very practical like mm -hmm. access to what if our suppliers run out of soap or gloves or aprons. Yeah or we need face masks to deliver care to people who have become infected. And 
Um, you know, so we're looking internally, we talked about technology earlier, we're looking at how can we do welfare check calls, how can we maybe use technology a little bit more to do Skype calls, how can we offer reassurance, keeping things on our website updated, reassuring our teams, reassuring people we deliver care and support to. And in a way, you know, as I, as I was saying to the journalist earlier, we're very good in the sector at coping with, you know, we've always got BCPs in place. We've always got strong infection control measures in place. Mm. Um, and I think we're kind of just kicking all those in. But it's when does that become almost impossible because all the schools are shutting and, you know, supplies are running out yeah. and things that are out of our, our own control. So, uh, so I think the government isn't, again, really making us feel confident about support. Mm specifically for social care. Mm -hmm. I think the, our NHS colleagues will help support that. But With the call that I was just on before coming on to here, I was uh, mentioning about what if in our area, so we had a member of staff or somebody in a home who had it, and then we had to take our measures, and then that home had closed, or we had lots mm -hmm. of staff down, and then that we had a knock-on effect in a lot of different homes. What is the local authority strategy? Because mm. we have to share our um, yeah. business continuity plans, but what, what's their plan? I just, as a provider, would like that reassurance mm. to know that there's something being worked through mm. um, um, and that will be given to us and not just we're being asked to hand over information to them. Mm. So I'm hoping that that comes through because mm. the whole staffing mm. issue and if anything yeah. goes down with staff really kind of worries me yeah yeah and I think that's that's true it, it is about I suppose the feeling of reassurance that along with the NHS and along with local councils private you know independent providers will yeah. be in that mix yeah. and we will be in it together and sharing resources because mm. um, some of the ideas that are coming out of central government quite frankly around student volunteers and bringing retired healthcare workers out it just a bit laughable um, and actually yeah it is very I mean in the care homes we do have similar situations where there's like bad weather and people get trapped or yeah. there's a bad norovirus historically outbreak or something and I think as staff you know we've had home care homes in a way not easier but you know you you'll literally have staff who get the family to bring them a bag in and they'll camp out for mm. a couple of days you know and bring the PJs in and then yeah. so and so I and if people are infected in that home, in a way, kind of a bit of a lockdown, you could probably have people in there, depending on how ill they are, whether they can work and yeah, things. Yeah. But um, given some of the symptoms we're hearing now coming out, a lot of people are achy and a bit fluey, but you know, yeah. they're, they're not, that's because they're able to kind of do yeah. things. Um, I think home care will be very, very different because obviously what you don't want to do is spread it all around a community. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be quite hard to think of solutions. I mean, we're, we're used to planning for bad weather. We're planning for you know floods recently in Herefordshire. Our team did an amazing job still delivering care amidst all that flooding. And obviously being affected themselves at home possibly mm -hmm. with, with flooding or, or issues and then having people we can't give care and support to having issues and then just the general infrastructure. So, you know, our, our sector... On a positive note, our sector is yeah. really good at, at coping with adversity and getting yeah. on with it. Mm -hmm. um, but we just need to know that while we're doing that, we haven't got 
regulators, councils, central government coming down on yeah. us and creating more issues than they're solving and that any resources that are there are shared equitably really. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. And I suppose it's just thinking through some of the ideas of you know, if you are having because the staff will do that, they'll say, Well, I will just stay in a surface mm. in a service for a while. But then because it lasts for the incubation period is so long mm. and then you know, some of our staff have got families, mm, young families. Absolutely. Who's yeah. going to do the school run? Who's going to do it? Because it's a long period of time. Can you keep yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. in a care home for 14 days yeah, whilst and their, you know, yeah. what happens to their families? Mm. Um, it's, I feel like it's just a little bit out of my comfort zone in terms of dealing with yeah. these type of incidents. But we'll see. It, it might all be over in two weeks' time. And you never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to some of the social media questions that we had. Okay. Um, so we had uh, David Smallcombe from Karen Sport West asked a few questions. Um, and the first one was, where does Agent Care stand on price challenge to local authority commissioners? So I think he's talking about when you are being commissioned to deliver, to deliver a service mm -hmm. and you feel that you just don't have enough money to um, deliver that service and yeah. challenging the local authorities who mm -hmm. commission you to, to you know, maybe yeah. negotiate the price. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's happened many over many many times over many years, and um, you know we talked earlier about austerity two thousand eight nine. Um, that was a key. You know, every, at that time we had to go through every contract we held and consider its viability and sustainability. Um, and we do that every year, or if a situation changes in the year, we'll, we'll do that. It's it's kind of almost impossible to generalise because every delivery is different, different rates, different circumstances, different volume, um, potentially different geographical issues with recruitment and pay and, and, and delivery costs. But I think generally our approach is try and have an open, honest partnership with your your local authority or CCG, um, be honest about the issues and the risks, um, present information, and I think it's amazing how many people don't kind of aren't clear about why something isn't viable, and if it's not and you can't make the figures stack up and people aren't listening, then to have the guts to give notice, and right. we've given notice on several contracts um, and pulled out of the area. And equally, we have had many, many, many tender bids that we would have liked to try and deliver, but operationally we felt that we, we couldn't deliver a sustainable quality service at the rates that were being um, tendered. So I think, it, in a way, it might seem for some easy for me to say that because we were a larger organisation, maybe we can withstand some of that pressure. But equally, we can have a lot of pressure points at any given time. Um, if you're a sole provider in one authority and that is all your livelihood, it can be a lot harder for people yeah. to say no yeah. and to stop. But long term, the result is, as we've seen, providers either going bust or just selling up and not being able to, to deliver that anymore. So I think, again, it's been very difficult to get the market to give a concerted, right. cohesive this is not acceptable because mm. we won't bid for something, but someone else will. Mm. Also, yeah. So it's difficult. I, I, but in terms of directly with the local authorities, challenge them, use, you know, rep make representations. Again, I keep banging on about it, but local provider associations, national provider associations, write to local government association, write to your MPs, um, write to central government, you know, yeah. lobby, um, explain, give information, don't just again I think be be constructive talk about solutions so some of the things we've done is gone back and said 
actually, look, this isn't about us making more money. You give us this and we will pass it directly to our staff. Yes. And that will help retention and attraction to try and help capacity. So mm. I think thinking about solutions, but um, it's just a long, it's kind of, yeah. you have to keep on it really. And also it's a lot for providers, I think, for smaller providers, when you're yeah. thinking at, we've got to deal with the issues yeah, of running absolutely. a service, yeah. and now we've got to lobby with mm. the local authority, mm. when you'd, and they may not even, I mean, yeah. sometimes they just say, we don't have the money for yeah. it, so then where do mm. you go? Mm. I suppose then yeah. you have to give it up. Well, know, I mean, we've like just done, we've had a service yeah. somewhere in, um, I won't name it, that we've had for six years and we've been delivering high quality gets, always had a good rating inspection, always been very positively received um, and we're delivering two and a half thousand hours of care a week and we asked for uplifts, didn't get it, Right. we're not making any money, so we're making, just holding its own really, mm. um, and so it's not about greed and profits, it's just about sustainability, and the tender came out and the price wasn't uplifted in line with what costs are rising, so we didn't bid for it, and we we're just about to hand all that work over to someone yeah. else. I don't know how they're all providing that care mm. at that price, but they are, but I don't know that long-term it's sustainable in terms of quality provision or in terms of yeah. a commercial model for the organisations. Mm. Um, but we are losing, you know, I don't want to ever lose that amount of volume of care delivery and, and lose the people that work with us for a long time as well. So, um, I think one yeah. of the things that I've noticed is you will have some organisations going into the care industry and care isn't actually their main Thing yeah, that they do. Yeah. So I've seen it where there's been a tender, and you know, some providers have said, you know, this this price really is we're going to struggle with mm. it. We're, we're not literally, we're mm. not going to be able to pay the minimum wage mm. with this um, commissioned rate. And then another organisation who's larger, who has maybe some reserves mm. to just invest in mm. something, takes it over. And mm. um, you know, what you learn in business school is that you ha you can have a loss making strategy yeah. where you'll take a package. Yeah it'll be loss making but then you'll be too big to fail so yeah. you can negotiate with the local authority yeah. to say you need to bring up the, the prices yeah. um, mm. so that you, you that's your strategy and I find that quite disingenuous but you mm. literally see it in front of your yeah. eyes and you see the local authority well say well they're cheaper so we're going to go with them yeah. and then what happens is sometimes that that large organization says actually I'm not going to we're not going to do it anymore our business mm. strategy has changed and they hand back the packages mm. um, to the providers who said you know I told you so mm. and I suppose the person who then doesn't benefit from that or suffers from that potentially is the person who's getting support. Yeah. And it wastes a lot of public money in the process right. through the tendering process through the negotiation and I think the other thing is you have got larger um, organizations that carry debt you know they, they don't yeah. run the business isn't structured in the same way that mm. a, a, a family-owned business or a, a sole trader business is and it's in it's it's very hard to compare and contrast some of those models of care delivery yeah. um but ultimately yeah, you, often yeah, if they're going to sell that on and as you say want to gain volume and then pass it all on to someone else but um I think local authorities, some of them don't feel they've got much choice mm. because their own funding position is poor. Um, but there are others who possibly do it as a strategy just to get care on the cheap. So. Yeah, yeah. It's comple complex. Um, so next question, do self-funders prop up the state-funded um, serv service users, so people mm. receiving care, um, like they do in residential care? 
So he was thinking of, of home care. Yes. Um, I think it's very different in home care. I think in most of the care, I mean, obviously you have got quite a lot of luxury operators, care home operators now who, yeah. who aim directly for the private pay market. And I think, um, but you have got a lot of care homes that do have a, a, a mixed, um, you know, client group. You've got people coming in from um, local authority, you've got people coming in from the CCG, and you've mm. got people who, who have the funds to pay themselves. So, and there is, in, in some areas, uh, a danger that yeah, the, the private sec, the private pay people end up subsidising. I think in home care you see a little bit more of segmentation. I think most of the people who focus on a private pay market, focus on that market, Solely. might do a very little bit. But like us, we do a little bit of private pay, but it's... It, it's in areas usually where we're quite mature as an operator, where we've um, got consistently, you know, we've got a stable staff team, we've got, you know, stable office, we've been going for a long time and we've got the reputation. And we're, because actually trying to juggle delivering a local authority contract mm. and all of the, you know, commercial and contractual responsibilities that come with that and the fact that those people are generally quite high dependency and shorter visits over the years and, you know, you're trying to fit then private pay people into those rotors and use the same staff team can actually be really challenging. So I don't know about, so I wouldn't say subsidising um, some organisations, certainly not in, in ours, um, and we wouldn't ever approach that as a business model. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the last question is, what do you feel about non-regulated services where personal care is being delivered? Um, so what do you feel about those, those services? Because lots of supported living providers walk very fine lines in this area. So I probably should explain that a little bit yeah. more. So you've got um, Care Quality Commission, CQC, yeah. They regulate services, mm -hmm. but they don't really regulate services themselves. They mm -hmm. regulate the activity that goes on. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, like person, personal care is one of them, and there's a whole list of them. Um, and then you've got the supported living um, services, which, if they're delivering personal care, can be registered mm -hmm. as a location, if you mm -hmm. like, with an address. Or you've got uh, domiciliary care services where the office will be registered. Mm -hmm. Um, and then some providers, traditionally, supported living wasn't registered, mm, so it wasn't yeah. inspected by CQC. And there seems to be uh, a bit of a binary or a split between some providers potentially doing personal care, maybe not understanding that they're doing it, mm. but not being registered. So mm. carrying out a regulated yeah, activity. Yeah. And then um, others who are. Yeah. So I think it's a massive, and people are just confused. Yeah. And, and I think the market, if anyone was to do a survey, mm. they'd probably find that providers aren't clear and even maybe some CQC yeah. inspectors aren't clear on it. Mm, um, and I think that's more the case now with extra care schemes as well. I think right. there's, there's that similar, I think, similar vein of coming through some confusion around inspections and approach. Um, I mean, I think, again, it's an issue that's been going on a while for supported living. I mean, when supported living first kind of was introduced and, you know, a lot of care homes even now are still kind of, taking a care home but going to supported living model but actually still operating like a care home um, and I think there's a danger in that because you are essentially running a registered care home not a supported living service. Um, I, I think that whole framework for, for learned disability for supported living for mental health is is still in transition it's still as you say confused. I think for me the principle of non-regulated service delivery and regulated service delivery is 
is a really interesting one in terms of we, we find it in living care, we find it in home care. Um, I think it's great if innovators and disruptors are coming into you know the social care sector and saying actually we think care can be delivered differently right. and I think it's great if people are empowered to be able to make decisions and go on a, a phone and find their own care, carer mm. and employ them and bring them in and I think what's scary about it is that people don't know what they're doing and to me you know social care you know fundamental issue is choice choice and control and you only have choice and control if you understand what your options are and if you have an honest assessment and information about what the options are and what the risks of them are mm -hmm. so that you understand that if you choose to go to a regulated service provider at this end of the road that may be more expensive but that's because they're regulated because they have to comply with legislation because they have a responsibility to you and so if the care team member goes off sick that's their responsibility to put someone else in they do all the pay etc and if you un then have a provider at the other end of the road that's non-regulated and is offering what seems to be a very exactly similar so. service mm. but actually they're not checked and actually you really should be having a contract with them and paying them yourself and actually if they don't turn up you should be the one that's arranging a replacement cover not the if you understand those choices and you understand that you're taking maybe more risk more responsibility in that other choice i think that's fine but i think what we've got is a is a society that doesn't understand so again you've got this you haven't got a level playing field and you've got the regulators coming down very hard and local authorities on the people that are doing it, trying to do it properly and, yes. trying to, and actually it's not that there's not a lot of people in, in the non-regulators trying to do it properly but I think the boundaries and the crossover is dangerous and I think it, it becomes risky for vulnerable people um, and it becomes quite demoralising for the regulated providers because someone's purporting to offer the same service but they're not um, and then I think you've got the whole issue about, yeah, in a supported living setting, it's not as, I mean, we've got our, our supported living setting um, that's a relatively new thing for us. Uh, we've delivered supporting care but under contract for just the care delivery. But we opened our first scheme last year for six younger adults. Um, and that is we have a separate registered domiciliary provision mm -hmm. and um, this not all six people have personal, personal care. care. So when the inspection took place, you know, not all of the adults were spoken with, their records weren't checked for all of them. But I could see even in that how actually, because there is some shared hours as well, how that could become difficult. So yeah. I couldn't, yeah, it's, um, I haven't got a solution. No. <laughs> but I think it's an, it's, a, it's an area we need to talk more about. And I know, yeah. for, again, I keep going back to lobbying for the sector, representing the sector, talking about the issues in the sector. And I know it's, again, something, you know, Jane Collin at UKHA have been very um, vocal about. It's yeah. not about saying we think non-regulated care is bad and they shouldn't be in the space. Yeah. It's just about choice, options, and parity, really. Yeah, absolutely. And understanding from both sides. Yeah, I don't yeah, think absolutely. Anybody understands that. Yeah. Know, there's any one person out there who say this is what it is and then the whole sex can say, oh yes, that's how it works. So no. yeah, agreed. No. Um, and I know that the CQC were doing a review of supported living, mm. but I think that's probably on the back burner now with everything else going on so who knows um great that was fantastic thank you so much thank you for having me yeah, yeah. i feel like i've learned loads i always oh, learn yeah. so much on these chats um every single time but 
I know you do a lot of kind of on the on conference scene and lobbying. If anyone is listening to you and mm -hmm. thinking, you know, either love what Agent Care is doing, mm -hmm. and I and I want one of my family members to get involved, or um, just want to get involved with some mm -hmm. of the stuff that you're doing, mm -hmm. um, how could they do that? Yeah, so we've got Twitter, we're yeah. on LinkedIn. Um, I've managed the, the Twitter account in terms of I've, I've got the personal one, so people can always um, contact me through there. But we've equally got the Agent Care, Facebook, LinkedIn, yeah. Twitter, contact head office, email yeah. me. Um, so yeah, we're always happy to talk to other people about getting involved and, and just sharing information for the good of the sector, really. Great. But um, it's been lovely to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Yeah,